0: My name is Larry Anderson. Welcome to Right Brain Stories. In this episode, I interview an award-winning photographer that started out as a geographer at the University of Sheffield and has in more recent times emerged as an international name in the world of photography, publishing books such as Motherland, documenting he and his wife's travel across post-Soviet Russia. The Election Project, where he was the official artist of the British election in 2010. His most recent book, Mary Albion, a portrait of recent Britain and her people in their landscape against a backdrop of unprecedented social and political change. So without any further ado, please welcome Simon Roberts to Write Brain Stories good morning um i'm with simon roberts a photographer in his studio salubrious surroundings in hove and uh it's raining outside but uh, um, we're inside and that, that's that's all good so uh welcome simon welcome to right brain stories thank you okay. thanks for agreeing to uh be a guest so um Simon, it'd be great for you to just uh, give us an introduction as to who you are and what you do, uh, so that the listeners um, have got a a brief intro.
1: Okay, so um, I'm a photographer. I would also describe myself as part geographer, part ethnographer, part artist, part communicator. Um, it's a weird thing how you describe yourself Mm. I never quite know how to do it so I suppose the main thing is that I I have ideas which I want to communicate and the way that I best communicate those are through the visual image Um, mostly stills um, but I'm also beginning to do more with moving image Uh, so I've been working for 20 years professionally, i.e. making some kind of living out of photography (laughs) Um, over those 20 years I've Make various transitions um, in the industry uh, in terms of the way that I um, make work and the, may, the way that that work is then viewed by people. So from magazines to books to exhibitions, etc. So you know the the, the transitions have, have changed over time in terms of the way that I I actually am able to support my work and, and get that seen. I didn't actually study photography professionally. I mean, photography was always something I was very interested in, but my background is actually from uh, academically within cultural geography. So I've made a kind of transition from um, social sciences to, to the arts, if you like. Um, and yeah, I, um, I've published several books. I work with uh, galleries and um, I, uh, I'm always looking for, for new things to do and say. Mm, well that's, that's good. Um. So we'll, we'll
0: dig into some of the publications a bit later. But uh, what describe for me the first moment you thought you were going to be a photographer. What What's the, What was the What was that light bulb moment, and what was it like?
1: Well, I suppose actually going back a bit from that, I was. My dad was a keen amateur photographer. He actually was a. Um, computer consultant um, and had trained as an engineer but he he was always playing with with the camera and I can remember clearly Sunday afternoons with the old uh, Kodak slide machine um, clicking away looking at various holiday snaps or the ones that I really remember as he the road trip that my dad did across America in, in the uh, mid-1960s with three university friends from Leeds. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and it and it, <laughs> it, it, it was the kind of like beat generation, yeah, totally. you know, my dad, yeah, yeah. you know, long-haired, yeah. kind of hippies hitting the road, you know, and it was, and I just, uh, all shot on, on Kodachrome, colour yeah. Kodachrome, which, yeah. you know, anybody knows about photography, that, that was a kind of interesting period in when colour photography moved out of advertising and became part of a kind of arts aesthetic. But anyway, my dad, of course, didn't know that. He was just kind of shooting this slide film. And um, so, yeah, so I remember what, looking at those pictures and just, it's that idea of the exotic and being away. And, and I found my, my, the town where we lived pretty boring, you know. It was kind of commuter belt into London. Um, it, it was kind of culturally bereft um so these so these these moments of looking at photographs and also my my dad was away a lot so i can remember in primary school often seeing an airplane and thinking is my dad on that plane yeah yeah and um and it was always that thing about going away and coming back with images which which intrigued me anyway when we you know part of the i suppose the benefit of my dad being a um a computer consultant working for Oracle was that we tended to to blag these quite nice trips so he'd have to go on a conference and a sales conference or they'd be rewarded with a holiday Uh, my dad would sell his business class tickets and take the whole family so we'd all kind of pile over to America or whatever so we went on a holiday to Yosemite National Park I suppose I was about 14 and you know I thought it was all right. it was going to you know interesting place, looked around a bit and then saw these photographs in the visitor center by Ansel Adams and was just completely blown away and what was fascinating was the fact that these photographs were taken in the place where we were staying. So this was an exhibition of Yosemite you know, shot in the 1940s, 1950s but what those photographs did was that they changed the way I began perceiving and viewing the landscape that I'd spent a week in already and it, what I found so surprising was the way that actually it made me more engaged in the way that I looked, so it changed the act of viewing. You know, suddenly I was, was seeing things in the landscape that I hadn't really noticed before so you know the irony here is you look at a two-dynamic, two-dimensional object on a wall, and it changes the way that you see a physical landscape. Um, you know all through the act of a photograph, um, and so you know after that I got a Canon AE one camera for Christmas, and and that was it. I was totally hooked, um, photographing you know anything and everything. Um, so yeah, so that was that was really the 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 kind of link with with photography interesting,
0: you know. I used to work for Kodak oh, as a research scientist oh, very um, back good. in the day. But uh, yeah, so um, yeah, it's um, it's interesting how you kind of linked that kind of a nostalgic thing, I suppose, word nostalgia with your dad and how you know how he lived and and um, and you know, quite often we have influences that sometimes we are aware of, but we don't necessarily acknowledge but it's only when we start to think about where we where we've um, come from that they, we tend to express them um, who 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 else has inspired or, or
1: mentored you of your career well I suppose that changes over time I mean there's y- y- your your influences are you know almost like looking at a layer of rock you know you have these different levels of strata that build on top of each other um so for instance i mean if we take yosemite as, as a as an example so you here where we have this landscape that's been photographed since photography was created the photograph you know the, the ability to photograph um and it, interestingly when looking at, looking at the way that yosemite has been photographed there are several photographers that i've been influenced that have recorded that same place. So although I was fascinated by uh, Hansel Adams's depiction of Yosemite, actually my own, the way that I photograph is very different. So his is very much about looking at the idea of the the sublime and, you know, this landscape being devoid of people and um, his photographs are very much tied into the the building of the the National Park System in America and uh, that, that idea of these kind of grand scenes. but 30 years later there was a photographer called uh, Stephen Shaw who was uh, in his um, you know, early 20s and was traveling across America on a grant Guggenheim grant. He'd actually spent time with Andy Warhol in the factory and was the one of the youngest photographers to have a, an exhibition at MoMA. but he was on this road trip and he was looking at this where America was on this cusp of change where he was Looking at the ideas around kind of commercialism and how uh, America was becoming this 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 kind of capitalist society and what that was doing, you know, to the landscape. And so when he photographed Yosemite, it was much more about the way that this landscape was was being consumed by the tourists. You know, the way that actually it was no longer just about this kind of epic backdrop. It was also about Holiday destinations, the way that we use landscape, the way that we interact, what we're wearing, and so it almost it was a kind of uh, uh, the a, a polar opposite to, um, to, Ansel Adams, and and for me that was much more interesting when I saw that work. You know, this idea of actually how humans change a landscape and you know, what effect we're having on 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 place, um, and of course as a Somebody who studied geography. I'm interested in that, mm-hmm. that the, the visual image and that relationship to uh, thinking about um, the way that, that landscapes can change over time and what influence we have on those places. So, so I suppose you know, looking through the pantheon of photography, there was these other characters that were that, that, that kind of started coming through. But actually, even earlier before that, I mean, uh, in our toilets at home, we had one of those um, cheap calendars, um, which was. Um, had um, Averkamp's winter, one of his Dutch winter landscapes. Mm. So you have this this naturalistic scene, a winter scene with this cast of characters playing out these little um, um, anecdotes. You know, mm. so you've got the guy drinking, you've got the ice skaters, you've got the person peeing, you know, mm. around the corner of the. You've got the fights. You've got you know this amazing little little narratives, and I'd never really thought about that as a as a as a as a visual image you know it was just there it was just it was it was like wallpaper mm-hmm. but actually that's become that form of expression um, is something that kind of seeped in to my I suppose my, my the kind of creative output and it's something that I've returned to in some form in terms of compositionally um, mm-hmm. a lot in my kind of later development because you've,
0: you've, you've talked about the ability to read a photograph um, and uh, obviously, if you spend hours in the toilet looking at a particular painting, you, you are going to see different things. You're going to see a bit of humour in the corner, or see, it, like you say, a bit of a fight or something. What, what, what is it that you, I think you mentioned before about um, the ability, people losing the ability to read a photograph, I don't know if that's because of volume or lack of composition. What, what do you mean by that?
1: Well, I remember somebody, t- uh, well, actually not telling me, but I remember reading about um, when William Powell Frith's Darby Day uh, painting was unveiled at the Royal Academy, you know, that was what, probably in the mid, mid-1800s. And that was a social occasion. Mm. You know, people, it's like going to the cinema. People would go and they'd spend a lot of time looking at these, these kind of tableau uh, images and there you have this kind of cast of characters, uh, you know, at at the uh, the Epsom Derby, you know, from the, the you know, the the, the well off having their picnics being served by the, um, uh, you know, the Victorian, um, what do you call I don't know, waiters or whatever. yeah, and yeah, their servants, servants yeah, yeah. and then you have the the pickpocket, and you have you you, you, you have this kind of a range of social strata. Um, And what's interesting if you go to the Derby now, you have, you know, still top hat and tails and then in in the middle of the Epsom Derby you have 70,000 people bust in from pubs around the country. So still there is this kind of rich um, sense of of the English or the British at play. I've completely lost where we go. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, the That's reading well, paragraph. So, so, so people, yeah, yeah. So so people were spending time, you know. So yeah. you, you'd okay. spend time looking at this and reading it and understanding yeah. it and thinking about um, um, different senses of, um, of society, and and I suppose over time with advertising and with um, more and more more and more of us having. Access to a camera, and by that I don't mean photographers. It just means we all have access to a, a device which can which can make a photograph. And with Instagram and with social media, etc., we are flooded with images. We see them all the time. And actually, to some extent, the way that Instagram works is is that you need to make a simple image for people to to enjoy it. And so, and actually, if you look at people now interacting with photography, it's very much a split second yeah. thing. It's like double tap mm-hmm. next picture, double tap. You know, it's that. It's that thing of we kind of um, our concentration is such that we need to see things quickly now, and we don't really stop and stand. I mean, there's some statistics about how many seconds people, even in a gallery now, will, will stand looking at a painting. You know, it, it's not something we don't dwell on it. We kind of we we pass through, and I think when something stops us in our tracks, it's quite unique. And so, with my photographs, I'm trying to create something that actually rewards the viewer for the longer they look so I I don't want to make a simple photograph the photograph is about the landscape it's about people in the landscape it's about creating these small narratives within that frame and because the prints are quite large often um, a couple of meters wide when you're standing in front of them you're not overwhelmed but you're certainly becoming part of this place and they the idea is to try and draw you in and then so first of all you you know you, you can ex- you look at the whole thing and appreciate the photograph of what you know just as a nice image but then as you get closer and you move closer in you suddenly start picking out these little kind of moments um, or you know what people are wearing how they're relating to one another you know these kind of private colonies we might be building on the beach or the architecture or the um, faded grandeur, or you know, whatever it might be, and, and actually, the longer you look and start asking questions, it the, the, the more interesting it becomes, and so that's really what I want to kind of do with 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 the photograph. It's,
0: it's interesting how, in a sense, history repeating itself, um, and a lot of your photographs do have those scenes with contrast in them. You know, um, the the uh, I think the the one outside the mosque, people coming out of the mosque, you know, and um, and or or the ones in Blackburn where you've got the uh, the gas holders in the background and it, and it and, and it just shows it's a I suppose a, a kind of a, a snapshot in time of Great Britain today. What what is it that interests you about the British um, way of life that?
1: Um, provide so much material for you well the, the interest for making work here was actually born out of a trip I did in Russia so I mean we're talking about creativity here in the right brain and, mm-hmm. and, and you know I, I worked for five six years within editorial photography that's how I kind of started out was making work for magazines and I became increasingly um, despondent about that process because although most of the, the the assignments I I was doing was ideas that I pitched, so this was about something that I was interested in doing. Um, invariably, you make work for the publication you're working for. So if it's the Squire, you make a certain type of picture. If it's the Sunday Times Magazine, you, you do it slightly differently, and you're thinking about the form of the magazine. So where if you want to get it on the cover, it needs to have this space here, and it needs. You need a double-page spread, and you need a detail. So you start creating the work on behalf of somebody else, and it no longer becomes what you initially set out to do. And then, of course, when it comes to the edit- editing stage, the picture editor, and the art director get involved, and then often the, the the editor might have their own view on what pitch they want the story to take, in, in terms of what what they're trying to say with it. So then that'll inform how they select the images, and so by the end of it, you've kind of completely. Yeah. It, it could be completely different from how you your vision for the story and so you know i kept thinking well how how can i have more control over the authorship of work and then actually i i realized that i just had to kind of go and make a body of work over an extended period of time that was completely um free of any outside influence so and at that stage my wife and i were, were thinking about having children and we thought okay well this is the point where we can just kind of go away and just Do something major before you know the kids come. (laughs) Um, And my my wife, we had met at Sheffield, studied Russian, and so we thought, well, you know, it'd been ten years she'd she'd studied there, so we thought, well, let's just let's move to Russia and just spend a year travelling across this exotic other place. Mm -hmm. Um, And what what, what, um, what period of time? What year? So we we left in two thousand and four, and I say exotic because I was interested in that um, that idea of. How photographers often go away to make work, and you know what do we bring back? You know, and, and you, if you look at that whole idea of the kind of colonial um, way that Africa was viewed by uh, Westerners, and, and the p- particular depiction of this, you know, the, the great explorers going out to explore the dark heart of Africa, mm-hmm. and even now when you look at tourist literature, it's very much you're pitched as as this kind of walking in the footsteps of Livingston and stanley you know kind of going out to you know where no other tourist has ever been you know and so i was very much aware of that when we were going to russia that actually i needed to we needed to go without any um or trying to strip away as much stereotypes of this place and actually just kind of travel um, and just explore and, and and for me it was an opportunity to really explore my own way of photographing and thinking about I mean, so it's People always say this, but it's kind of we think about finding your voice. You know what, how, and, and so this, for me, was an opportunity to, to really try and explore that. You know, what, what was I interested in talking about? How was I interested in making photographs? And for me, what was f- fascinating about Russia at that time was it was coming up to the 15th year since the fall of communism. And most of the photographs coming out from that 15-year period had been black and white. Um, so most of the photographs had been black and white. Most of them talked about ideas of disintegration, decay, collapse. Um, and I, I kind of really felt that the photographic dialogue hadn't moved moved on and so this was an opportunity to maybe try and look for something different. And um so we started in the far east of Russia and spent a year crisscrossing our way back, back um back to Moscow. Um and it you know, it was an incredible journey, it was it was tough, it was exciting, it was mundane, you know, everything that these kind of things should be. And um um and I created a book, and the book published when I got back, it was called Motherland. Um, and the book really kind of explored that notion of um, Russianness. you know, what it meant to be Russian, and this sense of being part of this vast landscape. I mean, we talk about the largest country in the world, and that's without looking at the Soviet states, this mm-hmm. is just the Russian Federation. Um, and there was a real kind of palpable sense of, of, of what the Russian landscape meant to Russians and that sense of identity and, and, and belonging and, um, and of course this is something that over, you know, since then is Putin has really kind of tried to build upon in, in quite a negative way, you know, this, this, you know, this kind of sense of patriotism has been taken, you know, far too far to the right uh, but anyway it's it, it it's something that's kind of i suppose been always been there and, and part of the reason that Russia's been able to to hold together as this country is this sense of uh unity um anyway so i arrived back in britain and and, and the, actually bizarrely the day that we landed at uh, heathrow was the day of the seven seven bombing okay so so we landed at heathrow couldn't get off the plane for a few hours because basically everything was grounded um, and then kind of, you know, it was finally when we got out of the airport and we drove back to my parents' house, you know, there were signs on the N25 saying London is closed, you know, it was just and then and of course the day before was the day that we'd won the olympics, olympics yes. and so everybody was this huge i remember being in moscow watching on the flat you know, in the tv in the flat we had that just you know this euphoria in britain you yeah, know yeah. we're gonna have the olympics so they gone from the euphoria to this state of complete shock and you know and introspection and then of course the debates over the next few months was you know very much about how did this happen what did this mean um and i for me it was it, it was just a a kind of strange place that I'd returned to and then the day that we went back to our flat in Stockwell was the day that John Menzies was killed on the on the underground so just me. like you know oh, what, wow. what on earth's going on um, uh, and so I kind of began asking questions about what you know what is what is this what are these debates about and of course we began to have more and more debates about uh, devolution in Scotland and Wales, devolving of powers, so then there were questions about well, what is England, what is Englishness, and and it uh, and then I just thought, well, maybe this is an opportunity for me to explore, you know, what's going on in Britain at this time, and do very much what I've done in Russia, but spend a year travelling around my own country, you know, actually looking inwards. And of course, people say you only see your own country when you've been away. Yeah. Um, uh, I can't remember who was the famous one that said that. I should know oh, this, but anyway, there was, um, but anyway, there was a, there was a famous photographer as well called Tenny Ray Jones, uh, in the 1960s who spent a long time, uh, well, actually a few years working in America, training with some of the kind of great, um, lands, uh, uh, street photographers at the time, like, um, Winogrand and Lee Friedlander and Joel Meyerowitz. Um, and he kind of come back to Britain and, and began witnessing this Americanization as he called it of, of Britain and so he decided that he wanted to make a piece of work about kind of old customs and, and and British oddities, you know, before maybe they disappeared so he did a famous series called A Day Off which actually published posthumously because he died very young um, from leukaemia um, but it was interesting, you know, that, that I was doing the same kind of coming back so I began looking at British photography and realized actually, you know, ever since the beginning of, of photography, the birth of photography British photographers have gone out to look at what is Britain and so I was really just adding another piece to that jigsaw puzzle Mm. and for me it was just an opportunity of of extending that legacy or that timeline Um, but doing my but with my trying to find my own way of doing it if you like Mm. so that that ended up being a book we English so that's a year's journey between 2007 and 2008 and then I just kind of continued it to the point where I've just published this book Mary Albion which is a 10-year survey, so from 2007 to 2017 um, you know, looking, at, looking at Britain during this frankly quite incredible 10 years, if we think, you know, it, starting with the, I suppose, the, the, the kind of collapse of New Labour and you know, the beginning of this kind of coalition government, austerity, the credit crunch, various royal weddings and uh, royal celebrations, the Olympics. Um, and then, and then you know, devolution, the the, the referendum vote in Scotland, and then Brexit. And it's just been quite, quite amazing, really. We look back at the death of Thatcher. You know, the, you know what did that mean? And you know, all of these these changes that have taken place. Of course, the challenge is, is how you look at that within the landscape, because of course, primarily, I'm interested in looking at Britain as a as a landscape and the backdrop, and and then how we see these various senses of ourselves being. Played out in the landscape, whether that be through a, you know, a football match or you know, or a gather a political gathering.
0: I mean, it's I mean, it's funny how I mean it's quite quite a timeline, isn't it? From two thousand and seven in terms of British history, the advantage that you've had of being away and coming back almost it was almost written that you were to come back at that time. I'd even realized that the the Menezes took place the day was it the day after 7 7 no it wasn't the was day just, after it was a, it was a couple of weeks in the same weeks. period yeah was the same, same period, period yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, because you know
1: there was this sense of paranoia yeah you know, it yeah. was like um, and of course so, that was that, that was just a um, you know some poor police officer that just overreacted and you know and that, and that you know and I think f- Menezes was just was just was, a geezer you know, what yeah, mean? You know and, I mean, and um, the, I remember when I was making We English, actually the whole credit crunch was taking place but nobody really kind of understood it apart from probably several bankers who could realise what was happening and started um, betting on it. But do you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, between yeah. 2007 and 2008 we had the um, collapse of Northern Rock in the beginning of 2007 and then it was only when Lehman Brothers collapsed a year later that people realised quite what was happening. And I think it's the same with, so, so it's, you know, it takes mm. some time. And so you've got all these buildings going up at the same time as, you know, Russian oligarchs and, and, and others no longer being able to fund or, or, or have the same funds to invest in London. So who's going to occupy all, all of these of the all, of these, all of these buildings? And so yeah. we only, it's only uh, you know, looking backwards, you know, looking uh, that, that we can tend to see how things are, are, are changing. So, um, mm. I mean, you talk about, I mean, you
0: talked about this perspective of travelling and um, and coming back to your own country and seeing things from a different point of view. But you also mentioned about finding a voice. Can you just um, kind of elaborate on that in terms of, first of all, yourself? And I think you've talked a little bit about it, but then elaborate on a bit more, but also how our listeners can find their voice because th- ultimately this is what this podcast is about that's what it's about for me my voice is I'm finding my voice through interviewing artists and creatives and giving it out to um, to the world but what is it about finding a voice that is
1: challenging and, but also rewarding? Well I, and I suppose what everybody lacks is time time to experiment time to explore you know we, we're, we're Increasingly living frenetic lives, um, and trying to sustain a particular standard of living, and we're on this kind of escalator of you know we must consume more blah 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 blah, and I just found when I was working within editorial, I was just kind of chasing work just to stand still, um, and when I was pitching ideas, you know I I I mean I think stepping back a stage actually one of the things to to say is that actually to maintain a creative existence, you need to come up with a lot of ideas because, you know, that's your currency really. Um, so I was I was always fine coming up with ideas. The problem is is that magazines would only have a budget to give you a week or whatever it was um, to actually make the work. So you, you were trying to say something quite um, profound, maybe, or or, or or really kind of explore something in detail, but actually the budget only allowed, you know, a week. Shooting or whatever it might be, so I always felt that i was I was always kind of making this work quite quickly um, without really being able to to go deep in and kind of kind of ask questions about why I was photographing what I was photographing who I was photographing what um, what did the what did the the subject really mean you know what um, and I, although I was also photographing my own projects in the background it didn't really i wasn't really able to just sit with the work and try and understand you know what was happening so really it was about okay well the only way to do this is is just to take a year out and just to go away and just to make photographs and 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 Russia was that opportunity and so the other thing is I wanted to do is make it very simple so I just kept the equipment very simple I use one camera one lens had another lens just in case it broke um, <laughs> and and it really was just about going out every day and just photographing and just thinking and then just you know moving to the next place and photographing and thinking and um and then the, what was interesting at the time is it was shooting film, so we were traveling three month s- uh, chunks so every three months we'd go back to Moscow because I had to get another visa because they were the Russian authorities were slightly uh, worried about this photographer and his, and his, uh, wow. fluent Russian speaking wife traveling around Siberia. So yeah. they we had to check in every three months. But what that meant was I wasn't seeing any pictures that I was shooting at the, for three months at a time. And, and that was a really good experience because it, it just meant that I was kind of pushing myself and, and really, um, considering what I needed to get next. Um, And I didn't have an overall, you know, kind of major overarching theme of what I was trying to do, although I did have a kind of clear aesthetic decision already made about how I was going to make the photographs. So then it very much became about the editing process and you know how you collate all this material and bring it together. Um, So it took a year of shooting, it took a year of post-production, and then it took a year to make the book. So, you know, it was a long process. And of course, the challenge with that is that well, how do you fund? When how do you fund that? You know, it's all very well saying, "Oh, just take time out." And of course, it's risk taking. And you, I think, I think you have to take calculated risks. And for me, that was a, a very important um, process. And what it did was it it, it changed the audience for my work. It changed the way I was perceived. It changed the way that I continued making work. It, um, and although it cost me a small fortune, in the end I made that back from book sales, from print sales, from, um, uh, you know, just from kind of raising profile. So, so it, it, was a, it, it was a kind of key moment in, in, um, in kind of finding a new way to, to project, or to, to not syndicate, but to get work out there. Um, and for me, the photography book is something I had complete control over, authorship. So I could decide, um, you know, what photographs were going to go in, how the text was going to work, the layout, the order. I mean, the, the publisher I worked with was very good, and they, they um, it very much was a collaboration. Um, in the end, you know, the, what the the publisher controls is the cover, because you know the cover is a is a sales thing. Um, mm-hmm. But otherwise, it was it was something that yeah was was really um, a kind of creative journey. Which which Sarah, my wife, was very much part of. You know, mm. she's a writer. or she was a, a writer, and you know, and she's actually a very good editor. So you know, it was something that we could create together. Um, I suppose the thing about finding your voice is that actually your voice changes over time. So yeah. it's there's there's kind of never one thing, um, but what it what it does do is enabled you to. Feel authentic, and I think that's what I was always looking for. Was actually that thing about what is it that I'm really trying to say here? What is it that I want to show people? And I and you know it it is really just uh, time that that that, that brings that. And and uh, that's not just through the actual act of making the work, but researching and looking. And I mean, because I mean, one of the before we went there was a there was a huge show at the um, National Gallery in London about um, how Russians had recorded their own landscape Um, and so that was kind of really interesting grounding you know was just looking at well how does one represent their own landscape Um, and of course when we think about the relationship between the visual image and identity, nation, you know, nationhood, is that often it is music, literature, and art that that create a sense of who we are, and um, and so I wanted to be part of that process, which is why for me it's been important making this work in in Britain. Is that actually well? I mean, legacy is a funny word, but you do, you know, I do felt feel that I wanted to leave or create a piece of work that, that, that has some legacy in the sense that the book will hopefully sit in a library you know, it, it's not kind of tomorrow's chip wrapper you know, in a magazine, there is something here that's tangible that, that says something about what, what has taken place over, over the last few years and, and, and what does that mean about um, you know, where we might go from here
0: I think that's really um, that's a great answer I think um, you know, that currency of time and finding a voice is, um, yeah, really important. I think that I can already see this as an emerging theme on this podcast series, uh, Right Brain Stories. And you mentioned one thing actually might be quite interesting for our listeners about you'd really made an aesthetic decision about what I suppose what what your well you tell me what, what was what was that aesthetic decision about your um, uh, motherland trip.
1: Well, I I went to see a book publisher before I made the journey um, just to to kind of sound them out really. This is somebody who I'd already known and spoken to in the past as a photo book specialist. And you know, of course I was also hoping that he'd turn around and say, yeah, we'll we'll publish the book off, you go and make the work. But of course everybody's non-committal these days, and so um, it was a guy called Chris Boot who used to be at um, Fiden Mm. and then started to set up his own uh, photography imprint. Called boot publishing, and um, you know Chris uh, doesn't beat around the bush, and you know which I like. And he said, um, you know, it's this sounds like an interesting project. Sounds like an interesting time to go. Um, show me what you what you've got when you come back. yeah you, know, you know, we'll talk about it. But he said, you know, the important thing is that you don't come back with a just a kind of mishmash of photographs. You have to think clearly about before you go, about how you aesthetically how you're going to do this so that when you bring this work back uh, to try to collate it together that there is some kind of coherency in style um, and so I thought kind of before I went long and hard about actually what were the decisions I was going to make in terms of the way that I was going to try and make the photographs so this was partly informed by you know, looking at a lot of phot- photographs that have been taken before both by foreigners and by Russians um, so immediately it was like I want to do color because I want something to to seem like it's now and not have this sense of looking uh, back and you know this sense of playing on particular stereotypes of the, you know the the drunk Russians on vodka or the the, you know, the vulgar rich Russians you know uh, in that kind of oligarch society so you know, so what else was there and color so color was very important, looking at the way that color was used by people like Levitan and Shishkin you know the, these kind of Russian painters who used a very pastel palette there was something kind of yeah. you know, quite melancholy yeah. often about the way that uh, both Russia and then Soviet Russia was was um, uh, was recorded and uh, writers described these these um, depictions of the Russian landscape as modest beauty and I kind of like that idea of um, you know it's very different to kind of western european senses of of what is beauty and you know there's often certain motifs like this you know the silver birch forest and the kind of fallen tree and the um uh, i don't know the, the cupola of the the orthodox church and so there's a particular way which i so so when i was photographing i made sure that even though we were going through all different seasons, that there was a particular color palette that I was trying to use that I often would overexpose the film slightly so that every picture had this kind of airiness, lightness to it. Um, then in terms of the camera that I used, you know, there's a decision there, in terms of what lenses. so I use a standard lens, so it was as if the eye sees, so there was no zooming or, or you know, so it was as if you were stood there. Um, and so there was gonna be a series of landscapes, often with people in them so look at you know how people were interacting in, in using the landscape but then portraiture for me was very important and there had been a famous uh, German photographer called August Sander in the ni- 1930s that created this um uh, book about Germany where he'd that did portraits of Germans across German society you know categorize them into into different um into different types if you like now I didn't I didn't want to kind of categorize russians but i did want to photograph as many different people as possible and think about how i was going to photograph them and and so the book really became about this dialogue between the the, the landscape and the people and i would photograph everybody from the 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 prison officer and the and the um the doctor to the street kid and the and the um woman in the sanatorium so you you're running the, the hotel and so you know it was really just a case of collecting but using the same way of photographing, so they were always stood in front of the frame, looking straight to the you, so looking uh, straight, death, straight to the pan type of, deadpan type, of... very deadpan style. And yeah, so so that when when I had finished, you know, I could actually collate these and edit them down, and uh, there was a kind of coherency through through the form of the book, and the book really became this uh, like kind of visual diary that takes you chronologically across. Um, uh, the the tundra if you like of Russia Mm
0: -hmm. yeah but I suppose it's and again actually having that book published is is a a great catalogue for people who aren't from Russia to kind of get a perspective of Russia because it's another place it's it's,
1: well yeah you say that but even for Russians I mean most of the Russians that I that that I've met and gave a copy of the book to afterwards were just amazed because of course you know oh because it's far yeah it's far you know they you know um but uh, one of the challenges was that we couldn't get the book published in Russia we couldn't get a distribution in Russia so what i did is in uh, using uh, in 2007 that we, um, when it published was that we created an online version of the book you know the kind of very you know when flash when people actually used flash <laughs> websites mm-hmm. but the idea was that you could actually just go through the book you yeah. know like turn the pages yeah. and so the idea was to try and get a, a russian audience to be able to see the work yeah. for me that was very important um <laughs> Um, and engage with that, you know, the people that I'd gone to photograph. Great, and right? so there was, a, yeah. there was a guest book where people could leave comments, and the, the idea really was to get Russians to say, well, you know, how did this kind of middle-class white bloke from Croydon <laughs> record our, our, our country? And he it was actually you know, very interesting to... Because they're proud people on it. They? They're, they're very like, proud, and, they, they you know, it and, and, they, and there was this kind of sense that that that, that, that I had captured something of... What they recognised and, and that, yeah. um, but but even you know when it came to photographing England before I went on that I made a very strict decisions in terms of how I was going to photograph it, so the England work is and and then after you know after doing We English became widened to Britain was you know it's all shot with a. A uh, large format camera, no portraiture, all about people in landscape, and the the, the compositions where people would no lo- never be more than a third of the frame size. So yeah, even there, I, I made specific decisions very early on about the process of of photographing. What type of camera did you use? Well, over time, over the ten years, I've used two cameras. So the the, the first half was all shot on a an ebony. Uh, a four by five inch field camera. So that's a film, uh, it's a kind of, you know, based on a Victorian style uh, camera, but this is made of ebony wood, it's Japanese, it's a beautiful piece of equipment. Mm. Um, and uh, the process of photographing is interesting because of course you're not looking through the viewfinder when you take the picture, because the film's there. So, uh, you know, it's the one where you have to put the hood over your head to, to be able to see and focus. So it's quite an antiquated way of making work, but for me, it was important to do that because I was going to be photographing in a lot of public spaces. I wanted this idea that it was a performance, that I was there making a a photograph and everybody could be aware that I was there as a photographer. Um, And, you know, often I'd be in the place for two or three hours and so people would just kind of carry on with what they're doing and... So, you know, I became almost conspicuous, uh, inconspicuous, really. Okay. Um, um, and then in about 2012, I switched to digital, but I still use a, a field camera. So it has the tilt and shift and uh, you can, you know, uh, all the kind of movement of elements, which is particularly important if you're photographing buildings, um, with a digital back. So you know, it's still a similar way of photographing, but rather than recording onto... Film is recorded onto, onto, uh, digital bag, and and
0: you are, um, renowned for another couple of pieces of, uh, um, uh, equipment, um, in terms of your your uh, your camper van, and uh, travelling with that, and do you want to explain about how that came about and,
1: yeah, so so when I was um, when I published the the Russia book, what was it I I began noticing that the importance of elevation in a lot of the photographs that I'd taken um, and particularly when you're looking at people in the landscape and so when it came to making the England work which was all going to be about people in landscape I I, I recognised that I needed to have that elevation so that what you're doing is you're you're opening up the opportunity for seeing people in the landscape so the photograph doesn't just become about the foreground and the horizon it becomes also about what goes on in the middle you know the, the kind of rich seam in the middle of the of landscape so you kind of have this panorama where the eye stretches through the frame from the foreground through the midground to the to the uh the horizon um which of course is nothing new in 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 art in the sense that you know mm-hmm. often that these you know paintings have had this sense of the perspective yeah. you know with the an element of power you know mm. the viewer kind of over overlooking the panorama panoramic scene um so i yeah so i bought a motorhome um which even in photography's uh, got its own place so ansel adams who i mentioned at the beginning you know, he would photograph from the roof of his van um and stephen shaw traveled around in a motorhome uh, and joel sternfeld and then people like the beckers uh, from germany who were working in the in the uh, 60s and 70s were Driving around, you know, in their VW van with a, often photographing the roof, so you know there's a kind of rich history mm. within photography of the road trip. Well, even my dad, you know, and he's really great. So yeah, so the so the the motorhome became a way of travelling, but it became a way of an uh, uh, important tool for making the photographs, so that mm. I could always have a an elevated perspective mm. to photograph from, and that's something that's continued. It was part of the aesthetic decision making through the work okay. so we've talked a
0: lot about ideas being your currency and and, and, and for any creative um, but also needing the time to do that sometimes um, though people don't have ideas and they're struggling they have a bit of a crisis of confidence or whatever it might be when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused um, or, or lost your focus temporarily what, what, what do you do what what helpful tips have you used in the past that might help our listeners and they
1: go through that same sort of feeling. I mean I've always collected clippings. So I'm always cutting things out of magazines. I love free mag you know, all these freebie things that, that yeah. yeah or, are uh, you know, it's people, people complain when somebody's left a newspaper on the train. I love it because I just pick it up and I'll go through it. And so I'm always cutting things out and or recording documentaries or or just jotting down ideas and I file them away. I've got a filing cabinet where everything's listed in themes or uh, places or, and then, you know, so if ever I'm, I'm kind of stuck a bit, I just flip through these, you know, these clippings. And, you know, one of the great things about being a busy society is that most people have a short memory now. So, you know, every story's been told, um, just give it five years and retell it or tell it in a different way or add your own... I'll, I'll write right, that down. Uh, or have your own way of telling it. You know, so I think, you know, There's it's that same argument where people say, uh, oh, we're all photographers now. Just because we've all got a device does not make us photographers. Yeah. It makes the fact that we can all take a picture. You know, nobody's ever said there's too many writers in the world because we can all write. So, you know, I don't ever become overwhelmed by the sense that there's so much competition out there or that you know I don't have any ideas because you know it just you just needs reflection
0: um and, and reflection, reflection is 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 individual isn't it yeah and you, yeah you look and of it course this changes
1: over time and 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 you know, the way that I make work now is very different to where I made it 10 years ago because I've now got three young children and of course I want to be around um, so I can't travel nearly as much as I used to so then you you know it becomes much more about well what 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 can I do more locally or what can I do by not necessarily using the same form of making photographs so I'm trying to become a bit more experimental which um, may or may not work but um, it's quite nice to to do something different and you know to be honest I don't want to be known for making the same type of picture in 20 years time I you know I, I think it it's, it's kind of good to experiment and um okay okay um so what
0: advice would you give to somebody who is uh maybe they're in college or maybe they're about to go to art school or something and um you know uh about you know how to enter into the real world we know your story but I mean on reflection how could that apply to somebody these days?
1: I mean, I think it's really about an element of tenacity, an element of um, intrigue, you know, to being just somebody that's intrigued in life and questions and and an element of... um, dogged determination you know, it's, it's tough surviving as a visual artist, it's, or as a creative particularly when we're told we have to work in a particular way, you know, this I think it may be, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, actually maybe it's easier now there's no longer a job for life, there's no longer that sense that you know, you do a trade And then that becomes your existence more and more we have to be you know footloose we have to have a number of different skill sets in our toolbox you know we can't rely on on anything so actually if that's the case then why not use your kind of creative spirit because you're not necessarily going to survive you know getting a full-time job doing something else so for me it's If I see students now, I think the main thing is saying that you have to have a a a well-rounded skill set. You know, the reality for me is that ten percent of the time I'm actually making images. You know, ninety percent of the time I'm doing something else, and that's kind of research, fundraising, marketing, um, uh, post-production, finance. You know, all this other stuff that you know has to go on in the background and often when I get students that come and help me here that that've done maybe just a photography degree they're actually they're, their skills outside of photography are very limited um, and I think that's one of the failures of, of the education system within the creative arts is that they give you space to think and make work but they don't necessarily give you the space to understand actually how to then forge a career it's changing i I do think that you know several courses now are doing elements of um, you know more kind of professional development, but that's certainly something that I think um, you know your listeners need to think about is actually the other elements and also whether you even need to i mean I didn't study photography um, so there's also questions about whether actually you know if you're a creative person anyway whether you even need to do that through education whether you can do that yourself I mean I was just for me photography uh, geography human geography has become an important framework and context within which I make photographs Um, I just spent a lot of time outside of that learning about photography photographers I suppose I didn't have the same um, element of that kind of art school backdrop and I probably missed out a bit there but you know you, you kind of can't have everything so
0: yeah that's, that's really helpful actually because you know it's yeah like you say it's not easy um, but that sort of doggy determination is important I would imagine though that you also hear bad recommendations or bad advice that might that people might have been given or you know in photography or just in any creative careers are there any sorts of myths or bad advice that you've heard of that, um, you know, people should be
1: wary of? I think you have to find a group of people around you that you trust. Um, that You know, there's a lot of people that will tell you different things. And for me, I've tried to always have a group of people, whether that's my wife, whether it's close friends, whether it's photographers, whether it's my parents, you know, certain people who you can, you know, rely on for good advice, for your own interests, you you know, that, you know, aren't going to, you know, send you, send you in the wrong direction, really. But at the end of the day, I think you also have to trust your own initiative, um, I just, instinct, I think. Instinct, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've often... People, people have often been quite wary, you know, about that. You know, that you've... Um, everything's got to have a kind of theatric... A th- um, um, what's the word? A, a theoretical background or a backdrop or um, it's got to be kind of well thought out and planned. But actually, sometimes I just think gut instinct is has, has done me... Crowd, and I think if you can kind of harness that with an element of realism, um, I mean, it's like you know, taking calculated risks. I mean, there's no point, you know, selling out and selling your house and just kind of hoping something will happen. You know, you've got to have a kind of framework within which to make decisions. But um, I'm very much of the idea that you need. To think about where it is you want to be in three or four years time so where would you like to see even with a student the you know, students come to say well what, what am i going to do this year when i graduate well you've got to ask where where is it that you see yourself in four years time you know if everything could go the way that you wanted to what what would you be doing who would you be working for how would you be um showing your work you know is it in a gallery is it in a is it on a billboard or is it in a magazine is it um, because you can only decide where to go next when you know where you want to be further down the line. And then it's actually a case of, about working backwards. And I'm on this kind of weird timeline where at any one moment I'm thinking about three or four years down the line. Because if I want to be exhibiting in museums and galleries, often they're, they're booked up for three or four years. So you've got to be approaching these institutions years in advance um, and also thinking about what work I want to make next then in the now you're thinking about the work you're making now and the commitments you've got now but then I'm also looking backwards at work I've already made making sure that that's also still being seen you know I've got various books and exhibitions that I've made that I don't want to just sit under my bed or in the studio I want to make sure they're out there you know making money and being seen and you know I don't make work just the fun of making work, it you know it's it's got to be out there. There's a process to it. Yeah, so a, yeah. so there is this this you know there is this kind of looking forwards and backwards all the time, and you you're just kind of shifting forward, for shifting that whole timeline, you know, as you as you move. Um, so yeah, so really I think it's about a support network, um, you know even down to editing. I you know I think it's it's important when I edit. I mean, editing is one of the hardest things, um, and I think it's identifying what it is that the biggest challenges and who are the people around you that that can that can support those mm-hmm. you know being a creative it can often be a very lonely existence um, and you need you know um, others there to, to, to help engage
0: mm. yeah no doubt I mean um, it's, it's it can be challenging um, and um, so you talked about that the sort of time horizons that you work to moving forward what, what, what are your creative goals
1: well of course that any you know the, the main goal is to balance the art and the commerce I mean, that's the that's the the tightrope that we're all trying to work well that, that i'm trying to walk it's it's you know i want to be existing financially off work that i want to be making you know i'm I don't want to feel that I'm just an illustrator of other people's ideas. I mean, I didn't get into this industry just to, to, to make fluffy pictures to sell a product or to sell somebody's, somebody else's idea. You know, it's really about what I'm interested in communicating and, and, and making work about that. And of course, the challenge is how you make that pay. And, and sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. But that's really the position that, that I want to be in um but also having the freedom to you know be a good father and be a good husband and good friend you know we, yeah. i think it's also important you know early on in your career you think you know this is it you know everything exists around me and what i'm doing and you know i think we can become very selfish beings as a creative because it's quite an introspective thing and um and actually the more more I've realised you can give out and help others actually the more rewarding the whole process becomes okay that's cool Um, and obviously you mentioned
0: we mentioned at the beginning of the interview about um, Mary Albion and and, and things that's your current that's your recent book and and how's that all going and what 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 plans do you have for it and exhibitions etc.
1: Yeah, so that's, um, yeah, the book came out at the end of last year and the, uh, I had a show at uh, my gallery in, in in London, Flowers Gallery. Um, you know, it's, I suppose I'm now in that phase of still trying to push the book and let people know that it's out and get a touring show. I mean, really what I, what I'd like to do is, is have a, you know, a, what wouldn't be all a major exhibition of the work, um, but there are large costs associated with mm-hmm. doing such a thing. But yeah, that's the kind of aim is that, you know, particularly next year when we're moving into a new political phase, nobody quite knows what that's going to look like. Um, for me, that would be an interesting time to show, show this work. Um, I've got an exhibition at the moment on at the National Maritime Museum um, in Greenwich. So that's mm. a group exhibition including the work of Tony Ray Jones, actually, who I mentioned earlier. So there's, there's him, David Hearn, um, Martin Parr and myself looking at the, um, the British seaside. Of course, everything has to be great now. So it's the exhibition is called The Great British Seaside. <laughs> um, so that's, that, that's been quite a lot of work, just getting that, that exhibition um, up and running. But that's on until the end of September. So, so now I'm in this kind of phase thinking about new work, what I want to make. Um, how I'm going to fund it um, and um, yeah kind of planning planning kind of future ideas um, is there a gift shop at, at the um, yeah, museum yeah. You yeah actually you don't walk through the gift shop You know, oh, they've really made, you know, they've made a bit of an error there you know it's not it there's, no, like there's no basic. exit, exit through, the, through the gift shop <laughs> I was going to say it's basic um, <laughs> so uh, but yeah of course they've got um, rock you know a piece of, piece of rock in the you can buy the book, and the, it's not quite David Hockney at uh, at the Royal Academy, where no. you can get tea towels and <laughs> posters and uh, and and tea sets. Um, yeah. So um, and also thinking about how to respond to to uh, to Brexit, I mm. I've kind of I am I'm quite a kind of political being, and I do I am fascinated by what's going on, but it's still I haven't quite worked out how how to react to it visually. Once my kind of anger subsides, maybe I'll be able to see a way to move forward. But um, Well, I, I've, I've got something slightly more close to home, which in, in
0: terms of the Windrush um, situation, Amber Rudd's gone now. Um, yeah. And uh, that is... I mean, obviously, you look at all the, the black-and-white film and, you know, the work that... you know My, my parents were classic, I mean both came over to um, work, one for London Transport, one to work for the NHS, and, you know, but they were pretty organised, so there was, there was no way that they would ever not, not have their paperwork. Um, but uh, that, was just massive, I mean, absolutely mm. massive, I and mean, such a, you know, to invite people over to help post-war, and then to destroy their landing cards, that was just so yeah on, i know.
1: mean i mean and, and i suppose that's where we have to be thankful for the for the press i mean that yes was the, yeah absolutely you know, the, the dogged determination yeah. of some journalists that, that, yeah. that just kept asking questions and yeah. i mean that it, it seemingly came out of nowhere but of course yeah. somebody's been looking into this for for a while and mm. and i think it, mm. and it's quite extraordinary the way that um you know it can change the landscape of politics you know mm. something um, i mean even looking at the labor party recently with the anti-semitism yeah. you know suddenly yeah. these things kind of seemingly come out of nowhere, but can actually have... They never countries. come out of nowhere. I'll tell you that now. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're kind of bubbling under the surface, yeah, but... Yeah. So and then somebody know, thinks, somebody right, think, yeah. there's a story and um, there's timing. Yeah, yeah but this, you know, this wind rush thing is quite extraordinary. I mean, how yeah. you can... Even just from, in terms of thinking about a kind of cultural heritage, why yeah. would you destroy these landing yeah. guards? I mean, this is a piece of our, our, our recent history. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. In fact, most empires keep really good paperwork the
0: Germans you know the, the British Empire you know all the stuff in India and um,
1: it's just very strange and somebody must have somebody must have realised that these were going to be important yeah. as as a way of proving so it, it doesn't seem to me that it was just like a an accidental decision that oh we haven't got anywhere to put them let's just get rid of them because they're going to be of no use I mean that's just, yeah. just I just don't buy that yeah um
0: yeah so yeah yes yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's a time of tumult for the whole world actually mm. um and um you know that actually ironically is a good foundation for lots of creativity you know a lot of creativity comes out of conflict and whether it's war poets or whether it's techno in detroit you know um it's 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 a, it's an opportunity for people to be creative, mm. or to to express themselves, to express what's happening through their lives, you know, um, and um, yeah, it's, that's that's fantastic. So, um, thanks for your time. No problem. Um, have you got any parting shots for our our right brain aspiring or already creative people?
1: I suppose yeah um, step out in faith I think you know to some extent you have to believe in what you're doing to really succeed as a creative you know because we live in a society where often people say that you can't you know you can't do this no don't take that risk no that's but actually you know the we are a creative nation I mean we've we've you know, had amazing poets and authors Incredible. and musicians, and and you know, the, um, and it takes it does take that kind of step to say yes, I can actually make this work, and um, you know, we don't all have to end up working in a bank in or, a cubicle. or in a cubicle. <laughs> um, go see Tony Erdman. Have you seen that film? No. So it came out in 2016, and um, it's a German German film uh, about the relationship between a, a father and a daughter, and it, it's, well, A, it's great to watch a good comedy, but it's so on point yeah. about creativity and about um, how we live our lives now and what are our expectations and what it means to be kind of part of a system and how actually... We can actually take a step back and have a have a kind of different world view, and I think it's um, yeah, it's 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 well worth it. Well, definitely, definitely check that out. But but I'd also and I say this to everyone is you you also just have to watch every Tarkovsky film ever made. Okay. Okay. <laughs> That's Andre Tarkovsky. <laughs> Fantastic. It's funny actually. The other day I was on a plane, and um, the guy next to me was watching a movie, and. Um, and of course, I didn't have. I wasn't watching the same film, and I had, didn't have a headset on. And I was amazed watching this film briefly with no noise, seeing how quickly every scene changed. And we're talking, you know, the the sequence of editing now of most TV programs and, and and films is split seconds. So mm. there's just a, a, a huge number of very quick cuts. Mm. <coughs> yeah, yeah, jump jump cuts. And I, and and, I was yeah. and and I was thinking actually how sometimes we we just need back to time it's actually where's the reflection where's you know the, everything we're being fed with is is instantaneous gratification and actually sometimes it's it's nice to kind of be more contemplative so that's when I think of a Tarkovsky film often yeah. there's you can have a kind of two minute sequence where there's no cut and it's just and you watch those now and it's really odd because you think, God, nothing's happening. But actually, it's really um, kind of food for the soul. There's something kind of really um, that you can really get into. And I think um, for me, there's, there's, we need a bit more of that kind of sense of um, uh, kind of perspective of taking a step back and, 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 and just slowing down our way of thinking and seeing and looking and asking questions so I think yeah Stephen Queen does that he has really long
0: scenes mm. um, and um, I think is it Terence yeah yeah so I think he does something similar as well where you know the scenes are slightly longer and you know kind of taking the beauty of, of the landscape but uh, yeah uh, th- there's definitely things that I've, I've heard of before in terms of just that time to reflect and um so I uh, really appreciate your time, Simon. It's been fantastic. It's been exhilarating and uh, definitely uh, uh, involved. So um, thanks for your time and we'll speak very soon. And uh, it's nice hearing your voice. Oh, <laughs> yes. I hope it's you're three, finding Through <laughs> your headphones.
1: <laughs> yes,
0: I think I'm getting there. Cool. <laughs> thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of Right Brain Stories. Please do give us feedback on whichever platform you're listening on. Big shout out to Jeff Kale, who wrote the theme tune to Right Brain Stories. The name of the song is This Day, and you'll find him on Bandcamp. That's Jeff J E F F dot com. Shout out Jeff. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Right Brain Stories.